Today's scripture reading will be from Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mysteries which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and power in the heavenly place according to the internal purpose which he created in Jesus Christ our Lord. Good morning and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. We're thankful that you're with us today. If you're visiting, as always, we encourage you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3 in just a moment or two as we talk about the divine origin of the church. And as we look at verses 9 through 11, we want to specifically talk about the church that Jesus came and died to establish. And so as we think about this lesson today, I would encourage you to look at what the Bible has to say about the church because it is, as has been said in days gone by, the house of the saved or redeemed. As we look at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 9 through 11, I want us to begin today with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this day, for the opportunity that we have to meet together on the first day of the week. We are grateful for the privilege that we have to worship without fear of any outside harm or forces. We're thankful for the Bible and for what it says to us. And we're thankful for the promises that we have in Christ and in his church. And Father, as we look at what the Bible has to say about the church, may we read, study, and meditate on these scriptures and may we uphold what your word has to say about this great institution. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today as we think about the church that is spoken of in the Bible, I want us to begin by emphasizing the fact that God is the one who planned the church. He is the designer. It was Almighty God that designed this institution that we typically refer to as the church. There are some things that maybe we would do well to consider in light of the fact that God is the one who planned the church. I want you to look at it with me from three aspects. First of all, let's think about God's plan for the church in purpose. Look again at verses 9 through 11, the passage that was read a moment ago. Here's what Paul said. And to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is the one who purposed or planned for the church to come into existence. The church as you and I know it was not an afterthought on God's part, but rather it goes back to the very beginning of time, if you please. Before God ever laid the foundation of the world, he had devised a system of salvation, a redemptive plan for the human family. This plan including the sending of his son to die for sin. It also encompassed the establishment of the church as we know it. And when you look at Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, what Paul is saying here is, is that when heaven and earth look at the church, they see the manifold wisdom of God. Why? Because it exists according to his eternal plan. Then there is another thing that I would call attention to as we think about God is the one who planned the church. We see it in purpose, but also in prophecy. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the Bible points to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. What we have to understand is that just as the prophets of old, foretold of the coming of the promised seed as revealed in Genesis 3.15, we have also the promise of this institution that we call the church. In Isaiah, the second chapter, Isaiah, and Isaiah began writing about 750 years before Jesus came to earth, looked down the ages of time and saw in the latter days the God of heaven would set up what he called an exalted mountain into which all nations of the earth would flow according to Isaiah chapter two at verse two. He would further pinpoint the place where the church would begin. He said, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to be the city where God's church would have its beginning. And then there is Daniel. Daniel, of course, had the opportunity to interpret a dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had in the long ago. Daniel, in his interpretation of that dream, told Nebuchadnezzar that he was the head of gold, and that represented the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was to give way to the Medes and the Persians, which would later give way to the Grecian Empire. The Grecian Empire would in turn yield her power to the Roman Empire. Now if you look at Daniel chapter two, Daniel sees a stone cut without hands. The reference there is to the church. And he said in verse 44, in the days of these kings, that is in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And he said, it shall stand forever. So what do you have? You have kingdoms, earthly kingdoms that have come and gone, that have risen and fallen, beginning with Babylon. The Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Grecians, and then the Roman Empire. 
And Daniel said, in the days of that Roman Empire, God is going to set up a kingdom that's never going to be destroyed. This is the kingdom that we're talking about. This is the institution that we are talking about right now. So you have the church planned by Almighty God in purpose, in prophecy. Think for a minute about John the baptizer. You remember when John the Baptist began his earthly ministry? John, of course, was the forerunner to the Christ. He was pointing people in the direction of the Son of God. John had a heaven-sent ministry. John was to prepare the hearts and lives of people to receive the Christ. When John began his ministry, Matthew tells us he began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was he doing? He was prophesying of that kingdom to come. Jesus, when he began his ministry, echoed the same theme. Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verse 17, that he too said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's an interesting statement made by Jesus in Mark chapter 9 at verse 1. Jesus would say to those in the first century, verily, verily, I say unto you, there are some of you standing here that shall not taste death, until you see the kingdom of God come or present with power. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it was said of Jesus that he went about the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he was pointing to what? The kingdom of God, the church that God had planned, purposed, and prophesied for. And Jesus himself prophesied of this great institution. And then we have the church in promise. Did you know that Jesus promised to establish the church? For example, in Matthew chapter 16, the Bible tells us that Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. On that occasion, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I the son of man am? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked this question, but whom do you say that I am? Here's what Peter said. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responded by saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto you that upon this rock, that is upon this great confession, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Jesus promised to build the church that God the Father had planned eons ago. There's a second thing I want you to see as we think about the divine origin of the church. Not only do we have the fact that God planned the church, but we have God's portrait or picture of the church. What about the details of the church? Let me begin by suggesting that the church was built by Jesus. There was just one builder of the church, that was Jesus Christ. Again, think about what Jesus said in Matthew 16 at verse 18. He said to Peter, and I also say unto you, that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus promised to build his church. He is the founder of the church. He's the foundation of the church. 
The psalmist said in the long ago, except the Lord build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no one lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus is not only the founder and the foundation of the church, but Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 20, he is the chief cornerstone. The whole church, this divine spiritual institution, rests upon whom? Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And based on that great confession made centuries ago, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. So the church was built by Jesus. But then I want you to consider also that the church was bought by Jesus. Let me ask this question. What did it cost Jesus to bring the church into existence? Listen, if you would, to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. In that context, there is an analogy between the husband-wife relationship and Christ and the church. And so he would say in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You see, Jesus loved the church. And the Bible says he gave himself for it. Well, what did it cost him? In Acts chapter 20 at verse 28, Paul would tell the elders from the church at Ephesus, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he purposed, which he purchased with his own blood. Sometimes people speak disparagingly about the church. Listen, the church cost Jesus his life. It is the blood-bought body of Jesus. He paid the price for it. So, when we talk about the church, and as we look at what the Bible has to say about the church, we have to understand that he is the one who built the church, he's the one who bought the church, and then there's another thing. The church belongs to Jesus. It's not my church. It's not anyone's church here upon this earth. But rather the church that we're talking about belongs to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. There are multiple passages of scripture that speak of Jesus and his headship and the fact that it belongs to him. Let me just say this. When you look at what the Bible has to say, he is said to be the head and we are the body. That's what, that's what the Bible teaches over and over again. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22, the Bible says he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So there is one head and one body. Jesus is the one head of the church. Not only is Jesus the head of the church, which is his body, but the Bible tells us that he is the king and we are the kingdom. There's just one king. And he is described as the king of kings and lord of lords in 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 12. We are the kingdom. Since Jesus is a king, does that not mandate the fact that he has the right to legislate the terms of his church? We talk about Jesus being the head of the church and setting forth the laws of his church or his kingdom. Well, why is that the case? Because he has that right. It belongs to him. 
You see, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus is the head, we're the body. He is the king and we're the kingdom. How do I know that we are the kingdom? Well, in Colossians chapter one, Paul said, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of God's dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we are a part of the kingdom. Furthermore, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. That's what he said in John chapter 10, verse 10. Well, in verse 11, in verse 10 he said, I'm come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. In verse 11 he said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now I said that the church belongs to him. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18? I will build my church that is singular in nature and possessive in nature. How many churches did Jesus build? Well, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's singular in nature. Furthermore, he said, it's my church. That's possessive. So the church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. And as his people, we belong to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul said, Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. We belong to God. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because he bought us. He paid for us. Let me ask you this question. If you went to the store and bought a new pair of shoes or bought a suit or a pair of pants or a shirt or whatever, who would that belong to? It would be yours, wouldn't it? By the same token, Jesus bought the church. Since he bought it, it belongs to him. And since it belongs to him, he has the right to govern it. He has the right to set forth the terms of his church. Look, if the church belonged to me, then it's up to me to set the terms. It's up to me to define the laws. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. So he is the one that sets the terms, the laws, etc. So this divine institution that we call the church is pictured over and over again in Scripture. There's a third thing that I would call attention to, and that is that God's people are in the church. You see, the church consists of disciples, learners, people that have signed on to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. How do we enter the church? What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible say about becoming a member of the church that you read in the New Testament? Here's what scripture says. The Bible tells us that salvation is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter two at verse 10, therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Salvation is placed where? It's in Christ. How then do we get into Christ? Paul said, for you are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on, to Christ, did put on Christ. So we are born into the family of God, aren't we? It's called the new birth. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter three? Nicodemus, of course, was a ruler among the Jewish people. 
He came to Jesus by night. And he asked, or he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do the signs or miracles that you're doing unless God be with him. Jesus said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about a physical birth. So he asked the question, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He would go on to say, marvel not, I say to you, you must be born again. So we are born into the family of God. Now let me ask this question. If we are born into the family of God and it consists of the new birth, what does that entail? It entails believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you remember the good confession that the Apostle Peter made centuries ago? And upon that confession, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. What was that good confession? That Jesus is the Son of God. Do I have to believe that Jesus is deity? Yes, I do. How do I know that? Because he said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. In other words, unless you believe that I am, the great I am, you'll die in your sins. And then we have to be moved to a state of repentance. We have to give up a life of sin. On Pentecost Day, Peter preached as well as the other apostles, to a multitude of people in the city of Jerusalem. On Pentecost Day, we have the church beginning. Up until Acts chapter 2, everything is spoken of as the church. In other words, in prophecy. When you get to chapter 2, though, you have the apostle Peter opening the doors of the kingdom. And here are the terms of admission. Verse 38. They had said, what are we going to do? Peter said, repent. That means you've got to get out of the sinning business. Then he said, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In other words, so your sins can be forgiven. 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on Pentecost Day. Here's what the Bible says in Acts 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So when we're baptized into Christ, what happens? God places us in the church. How do I know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said, by one spirit were you all baptized into one body. Somebody asked the question, what's the one body? He's the head of the body of the church. The church and the body are one and the same. As a matter of fact, the terms church and kingdom are often used interchangeably. And so, when we're baptized into Christ, we are placed in that divine body called the church. That's what Luke said in Acts 2, verse 47. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Well, somebody asked the question, how many bodies are there? There's one body and one spirit. Even as you're called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So there's one body and one head. When we're baptized into Christ, we're placed in that one body. We are then said to be the redeemed. You see, redemption is in Christ. It's in the one body. 
Again, in Colossians chapter one, Paul said, we are delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. It's in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So there is redemption in the body and there is reconciliation in the body. Where am I said to be reconciled to God? What does sin do? It separates us from God, doesn't it? There is alienation because of sin. But through Jesus we have what? Reconciliation. In Ephesians 2 verse 16, the Bible tells us that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in the one body. Again, what's the one body? The one body's the church, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So what do we have? We have redemption in the one body and reconciliation in the one body. Well, who enjoys that? God's people. How do we enter the church? Faith, repentance, baptism into Christ. We're added to that one body and we live for him on a daily basis. Now let me ask this, this second question. What are the expectations for the church? In other words, what is it that God expects from me? Once I become a child of God, what does he want from me? Let me give you three things very quickly. Number one, God wants me to be visible, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. In Ephesians five, verse eight, here's what Paul said, you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Did you know that you and I are to be lights in the midst of a darkened world? In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John talks about how the whole world lies in darkness or lies under the sway of the wicked one. Who then is responsible for dispelling this spiritual darkness that engulfs the world? We are, the people of God. We've got to be visible. We've got to live in such a way so that people see us and they say, you know what? They are children of God. They're Christians. They are letting their light shine. Look at our world. Look at our country. Did, did Solomon not say righteousness exalts a nation? Is it not the case that when people in the world see the church, they ought to see the manifold wisdom of God? They ought to see a visible presence in this community, in this state, in this world? The answer is yes. God expects us to be visible. We're not supposed to hide our light. We need to live in such a way so that when people see us, they see Christ living in us. They need to see Jesus in my life. And they need to see what it means to me to be a member of his church. A second thing, God expects me to be vocal. I have a mouth and the Lord wants me to use it to tell others about it. What did Jesus say before he ascended to heaven? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Christianity is a religion that must be taught. Jesus said, it's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me, John 6, 44 and 45. I have the responsibility of teaching. 
And let me just, let me just make this observation very quickly. Look, look at our country. Look, look at our world. Would you say that, that our country is on the right track? Would you say our world is on the right track? I think the answer would be no. Well, who has the responsibility of speaking up and saying, hey, here's what we need to follow? Who has the responsibility of sounding out on moral issues? Whatever those moral issues may be, who has the responsibility of being a voice piece, a mouth for God? I do. In Acts chapter 20, verse 20, Paul talks about his work in the city of Ephesus and among the people who belong to the church in Ephesus. And here's what Paul said. He said, I taught you publicly and from house to house. Do I have a responsibility to be a voice for God publicly? Yes, I do. Publicly, how can I use my voice for God? On the radio? Through television? I have the responsibility of being a voice for God in print, whether it be newspapers, advertisements, tracts, books, magazines, whatever the case may be. The point is I have to use my voice for good. I think we take it for granted sometimes that people understand what the Bible teaches on certain moral issues and other things that are going on in our world. Let me tell you what, people don't know. And the only way they're going to be enlightened is for us to speak up and tell them, hey, look, this is what the Bible says. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, he said, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Who's going to tell people in this city or state or Mid-South area or regions around us what the Bible teaches? on moral issues. Who's going to do that? We have that responsibility. Who's going to teach what the Bible has to say about the church? We have that responsibility. Who's going to teach the world, this community, what the Bible teaches about how to become a member of the church? We are. We have that responsibility. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, the Bible says that the disciples turned the world upside down. Our world today is upside down. What we need to do is turn it right side up. And the only way we can do that is by the truth. So we have to be visible. We have to be vocal. And then the third thing, God expects us to be victorious. God wants us to win the race. In other words, God wants us to be with, with him one day in heaven. How are we going to do that? By being faithful until death. The Lord wants us to be with him in heaven one day. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Let me ask this question in closing. Why be a member of the church? Because the church is the saved. You see, you can't be saved outside the church. How do I know that? Because Paul said in Ephesians 5.23, he is the Savior 
of the body. What's the body? He is the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. So, are you a member of the church? Have you been saved from every sin? Did you know that God loves you, that he sent his son to die for your sins? And that through faith and obedience to the gospel, you can become a member of the church that we read about in the Bible? That God will forgive every sin. He'll add you to this divine body. And if you live for him day in and day out, the promise is eternal life. One day we'll stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. And don't we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Don't we want to hear him say, enter into the joy prepared for you from the foundation of the world? God wants his people to be victorious. He wants us to be with him in heaven one day. If you're here today, you've never obeyed the gospel, why not do that this hour? If you're here, maybe you're not faithful, you're not what you ought to be, why not come home? Why not come back to a loving God who will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing?